Good morning. It's good to see you. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, while you're turning there, I'll say I can't imagine that anybody is uh, happier to be here this morning than we are. We uh, love this church and uh, are thankful to see the new digs and uh, how that uh, all came together. So thankful for you got a tour this morning, and, uh, but even more than that, we're glad to see your faces. We were laying in bed the other night, and Lauren said, we were talking about being here, and Lauren said, uh, I just love how Kenwood was no drama. <laughs> and just, it was a peaceful place to be. Not talking anything bad about any, any other place, just Kenwood being a place of peace and no drama. And when we were talking about that, it, that's when I realized I wanted to uh, preach on Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, um, because uh, the unity that you have here, that you experience here in this body, is a wonderful gift, uh, but it's not a gift that should be taken for granted. And so this is a text that gives us instruction in how to pursue the kind of unity that is so precious in the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and this is what God's Word says. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just sang about truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And it reminds us that as we pay attention to these words this morning, we are situated in the midst of eternity. These truths tell us what is eternally the case in your kingdom. You love peace. You love unity. And there is one way to get it. There is no second option. There's no list. We have read about the way to achieve unity. And then, Father... We think about that truth that is situated in your eternal mind and revealed to us in your word, which is active. It is energetic. As soon as this word got into our consciousness, it's there and it's going to do something. And forever, the word that we just read will matter. And so, Father, as we are situated here in the midst of eternity, I pray that you'd change us for the good. I pray that you would pierce through all of the distractions and crack through and change us. Make us more like Jesus Christ, where there is disunity and rancor, 
in this place, where there is frayed relationship, where there are spirits of a quarrelsome kind in our families. Father, we pray that you'd change us, that you'd change us by the word, that you'd change us by the spirit, that you'd change us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have read through Ephesians, even just one or two times, the structure of it is obvious and familiar to you. The first three chapters are a very nice, neat, and tidy, even if a profound exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are instructed in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The work of Jesus Christ and the blessings that it has given to us explodes with relevance in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then in the last three chapters, the gospel is put to work, as it were, and we're told what the gospel does in our life. We're told how we should be different, what our lives ought to look like because of who Jesus is and what he has done. That structure is obvious to anybody who even just understands a little bit about the book of Ephesians. What I want you to notice this morning is as the Apostle Paul pivots from an exposition of the gospel to the application of the gospel in our life is where he starts. And where he starts is with unity. Unpacks the gospel, tells us who Jesus is and what he has done, and then he starts with application by speaking about unity and peace. And if we believe that the Apostle Paul was a serious man, if we believe that he was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, then that transition ought to matter to us. The Apostle Paul could have started anywhere he wanted with the application of the gospel. He could have talked about the importance of headship and submission. He could have started with the importance of parental relationships. He could have started with the importance of sexual ethics. And actually, he will get to all those in due course. But he didn't start there. He started with unity. He gives this appeal for unity and peace right out of the gate. First thing he does is unity and peace. Why did he start with that when he could have done anything he wanted? Well, I think there are a couple reasons for that. But the main one is that unity around the gospel is a precious commodity. Unity around the gospel is precious because unity is rare in our world. Are you paying attention? Uh, we just came out of a presidential election that everybody says is the most divisive in American history. We just came out of a presidential election where you could draw lines down the middle of some churches with disagreements about who was voting for whom. 
You could draw lines down the middle of some families with disagreements about who was voting for whom. Our world is disordered. I mean, the best example, we're on the road from Jacksonville to here yesterday, and we walk into some gas station someplace, and the headline on the television is terrorist attack in London. It's like the opposite of unity. Our world is messed up. Our homes are broken. We don't have to go all the way to London. We don't have to go all the way to Washington, D.C. We can just listen to what our homes sound like, even in good homes. Our homes so often don't sound harmonious. They sound like rat-tat-tat of rifle fire is what our house, houses sound like sometimes. Unity is rare. It's an odd bird, and unity is hard, isn't it? I take it it's hard. We would have more of it if it were easier. We put this text through the paces in our home in the car. I don't know what it's like in your car, but yesterday, our car, about the time we got north of Atlanta, felt more like a padded cell <laughs> than an SUV. But that's not even the hardest place where we experience disunity in the car. For whatever reason, in our home, and if it's the case in your home, then you can say amen silently, and you'll just know you've got a kindred spirit in me. There's something about the car ride on the way home from church that is particularly difficult. Always has been. Always has been hard in our family. There's a couple reasons why it's hard. Uh, we always eat lunch earlier uh, than we do on Sunday. So by the time you're done with church, by the time you finally get to the car, everybody's hungrier than normal. Now, Kenwood has tried to fix that with the potluck, and maybe that's what's the source of the unity. <laughs> but I don't think so. I'll get to that in a minute. But for everybody that's not Kenwood, you're generally hungrier on Sunday afternoon than you are other times because you just eat lunch so late. And in our home, things are a little worse than that because my dear and precious wife has to close the building down, talking to every last individual that is there. I've never seen this person in my life. And Lauren is like sharing a childbirth story or whatever. I don't even know. It's like the the cleaning crew. I've never seen them, but uh, we're talking to them. And I'm like in the, in the car, like, when are we going to eat something? I, I want her to talk to people. I'm just hungry. And then the kids are in the back and there's an iPad and it's World War III about whose turn it is. And okay, it's his turn, but he won't let me look at the picture. And he's not letting me watch something that I want to watch. And that game's stupid. And it's like, oh my goodness, it's complete and total chaos. And it's painful. It is rare and hard for us to have unity, even in our family. We love each other. Here's the thing, that's a, that's a relatively pedestrian example. But some of you are aware of disunity on a much worse extreme. Uh, 
that, that example of disunity that I just gave is real and painful at times, but it's not as real and as painful as what some of you have experienced. Some of you know the experience of a deep heartache because of the lack of unity in your home, in your other relationships, maybe, maybe in your church. And the reason disunity is so prevalent, the reason unity is so rare and so hard, so precious, is because of James chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. It says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile thing. The Bible backs every disorder and vile thing, so disunity, a lack of peace. The Bible takes all of those vile things and it backs all of it up into jealousy and selfish ambition. That means the reason we struggle with unity in our churches, in our homes, in our world is because we are selfish. If there's disunity in your relationships, it's probably a result of you. When there is disunity, it always backs up. It's a vile practice, and it always backs up into somebody being obsessed with having what they want, and they won't let it go. Maybe you're the one that won't let it go, but somebody is doing that. It turns out that the only thing harder than dealing with disunity and discord and disagreement and all the pain that that results in, the only thing harder than that is the agony of killing our selfish ambition, my bitter jealousy. And so Paul appeals for unity because this is the main thing the gospel does. The main thing the gospel does is kills my bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and it makes it possible for me to live in community with you. And he intends, God does, the community that we live in to nurture and deal with the kind, uh, to nurture the kind of unity and deal with the kind of discord that is a threat to that unity. So Paul appeals for unity early. Because unity is important and it's crucial that we use the community of the church to execute our selfish ambition. So Paul makes this appeal for unity, but before he appeals for unity, he gives the basis for his appeal. He says in verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord. The Apostle Paul refers to himself, he's, he's just unpacked the gospel, he's getting into an appeal for unity, and he reminds you that he's a prisoner of the Lord. He did it earlier in verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, he wants us to remember that he is a prisoner. It's like Paul saying, I'm asking you to do something really hard, and I get it. I get that what I'm asking you to do is hard. Let me tell you about a hard thing. 
He's saying, I have so consistently lived the Christian life that now I'm paying for it with my freedom. He's reminding us that he has the right, he has the street cred to tell us to do a hard thing because he has so lived faithfully for Jesus that he's locked up. And so we're not allowed to say, well, the apostle Paul didn't know anything about hardship. He didn't know what it's like in my family. He didn't know what it's like in my church. He didn't know what it's like at my workplace. He's reminding us, it's like he's saying, who else is in prison? Who else has been so faithful that they've been locked up? The Apostle Paul has earned the right, earned the right with his freedom to be telling us a hard thing to do. That's one basis for the appeal is that he's so faithful he's lost his freedom. Here's another basis for the appeal is that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. He's saying you've received a calling. You've been called to do something. This calling, calling language happens a couple different ways in the New Testament, but the most important way, the most significant way is our calling to be in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The most significant calling that you would ever receive is the calling to be united in fellowship with Jesus Christ. You could actually say that it's the job of the book of Ephesians to unpack that calling. The Apostle doesn't usually use the language of calling in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, the language of blessing is more predominant. But it's the same idea. You have been called to participate in every spiritual blessing, he'll say in Ephesians chapter 1, and those blessings are in Christ. And so what he's doing is he's reminding us that this, this appeal to unity is grounded in the calling you've received. You are in Christ. He's reminding you how you'll be able to do this. When unity feels hard, when unity feels painful, when letting go of your selfish interest seems impossible, he's reminding you that you've received a calling. And the calling is that everything you need has been handed to you on a silver platter by Jesus Christ. You have been a beneficiary of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been called to be united with Christ. And so you can do this hard, painful, difficult, challenging thing because Jesus died for you and he didn't stay dead. He rose and he ascended. And he is in heaven right now appealing for you to be able to do this before the Father. So Paul can tell us to do hard things because he's locked up and because he understands it's possible to do what God calls you to do because what God has accomplished for you in Jesus Christ. That's the basis of the appeal for unity. And now comes the actual appeal. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Does this shock you? It would shock a lot of people 
It would shock a lot of Christians today because the Apostle Paul here demonstrates that he did not get the email that came out from a lot of people in evangelicalism that you're not supposed to tell Christians to do anything. That, that is a memo that's gone out all over the place, and the Apostle Paul didn't read it. He says, like some legalist, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. If this weren't in the Bible, and I stood up at a lot of places in our Christian subculture today, and I say, what you need to do is walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You need to live your life so that you're worthy of Jesus. I'd be run out of some places. I, or not, that's not Christian. Christians talk about what Jesus did. We don't talk about what we do, but the Apostle Paul is quite comfortable telling us to do something. He's telling us to walk and be worthy of the calling we have received. And so we just have to remember how works work in the Bible. We don't accomplish good works to compel divine favor. But one of the graces of the bestowal of divine favor is the ability to accomplish good works. It's one of the things Jesus accomplished for us. That's part of the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul isn't forgetting what he said about what Jesus has done. He's applying it. Because of what Jesus has done, you can do this. You really can. Just trust him. Look to him. Walk in a manner worthy. And then in verse 3, he says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does it mean to walk worthy of the calling with which you've called? In the context of relationship, you've got to be diligent to do something. And you've got to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. There is a thing. There is a reality for the Christian in the church, and that thing, that reality, is the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. That's a real live thing. It's an object. It's a commodity that exists in the church. What is it? Well, I think Ephesians 2, 13 to 18 talks about it. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it, having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit into the Father. The peace that is a real live commodity is Jesus himself. Jesus is our peace. The apostle here is giving us urgent language. There is a bond of peace. It exists. It's Jesus. Jesus himself. That exists, and you need to be diligent to preserve that bond. This is, an, this is a relationship emergency. If you trash the unity and the peace at Kenwood, you trash Jesus Christ. That's the point. When you undermine the unity 
that ought to exist in this church. You undermine the work of Jesus Christ. Disunity and lack of peace is blasphemy. Do you see? This is an emergency. And so how do we behave in a diligent fashion so that we aren't guilty of the blasphemy of undermining the peace that Jesus has given? Well, I think he gives us four ingredients. And they're all in verse 2. First, we've got to have humility. We've got to have humility. Now, I don't know about you. One of the things that's hard for me in studying the Bible is when you've got isolated words and phrases that are piled up and trying to come up with a careful understanding of what's going on there, because they're, they're minus a lot of the context, it can be hard for me, but we'll take a crack at it. Humility is the first ingredient if we're going to be diligent to preserve this unity in this peace. Let's say that humility is when we put others first. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Who, who would say something like that? Just on their own, without the Spirit. You know what's really important is for you to think other people are more important than you. Nobody says that. Remember, James? The whole big problem is I want what I want, and I don't care what you want. Who gives a rip about what you want? And then the Apostle Paul comes skipping in and says, hey, guess what? What they want is more important than what you want. And when you realize that, it will be the fruit of humility. So let's say humility is when you put others first. And then let's come back to the car ride after church. And all I want, I just, I just, I want one thing. It's not a sinful thing. I just want a taco. <laughs> it's, it's quarter to one. I had a thing of yogurt at six. And I just want just a little, just a little taco. And Lauren is, but we've moved to the car and the kids are like pressed up against the glass and Lauren is talking to some dear, sweet person. What, what am I going to do? How do I be humble there? I could insist on my own way. I could insist on my taco. Or I could say it is good and right that Lauren have her way. I could do that. I lie when I think the way to fix this is with the text. Hey, baby, everybody's hungry. Let's go. That's one way to fix it, but it's not the biblical way to fix it. I, I can put all kinds of pressure on her, but the reality is the Bible tells me I've got to be humble. I've got to let her have her way. And when I do that, I'll be diligent to pursue peace. The flesh, my selfish ambition says, Heath, you got to leave when you want to leave. But God says, no, you don't. Let it go. Let it go. You get a taco or not, but either way, you'll be all right. Second 
ingredient, gentleness, gentleness. What does it mean to be gentle? You're gentle with something when two things come into play. When two things happen, you're gentle. When you're dealing with something that is fragile. Fragile. Anybody remember that? Whatever. (laughs) When something is fragile, when it's very easily broken, and two, when it's rare. When something's easily broken and rare, you're gentle with it. So you're not gentle with football because it's not fragile and it's not rare. But you are gentle with the baby's first Christmas ornament because it's very fragile and when it breaks, there's not another one coming. So when things are fragile and when they are rare, we're very, very careful. But that's what we're supposed to do. That's not often the way we are in our relationships. A lot of times we're harsh in our relationships. So car ride, iPad. He made a mad face at me. He won't hold it still. It's my turn. It's been 20 minutes. He made another mad face. Mad face is a cardinal sin in the uh, Lambert family (laughs) with our children. If you want to just wrap it up and send it home, it's he made a mad face. That's proof that they're ill-intended. And there are times when I have, sometimes it's the iPad, sometimes it's a Lego, sometimes it's what we're going to watch on Netflix or whatever, but I have actually picked up the Lego and I have put a face of a child in my hand and made it squishy because they're cuter that way. And I've, I've made the arguing child say, okay, I want you to look at both of these things. I want you to look at both of them. One of these is going to be sitting at our Thanksgiving table in 20 years. And one of them is going to be in a dumpster someplace. Now, I'm not asking you which one you want that to be. I'm asking you, which one is it going to be? It's going to be my sister. Okay. Look, your sister right here. Soul that will never die. Made in the image of God. Only sister you're ever going to have. I promise you, you won't care about this in a year. I promise. So you're being wise or foolish? You're being foolish. Do you remember? I'm not going to put anybody's face in my hand here and make it squishy. But if you look around, these are souls that will never die. These relationships will endure into forever. We have to be gentle because they are very, very fragile and they are incredibly precious. Third, patience. Patience. Let's say that you are patient when you're joyful in the midst of a difficult situation. Patience is, I'm going to be happy or joyful, whatever, 
uh, in the midst of a difficult situation. Patience is something more than just sitting out the difficult situation and gritting and gnashing your teeth. It's, it's having some level of joy in the midst of the difficulty. We will nurture relationships, unity, and peace when we are humble, when we're gentle, and when we are patient. And so we go back to the car ride. And I realized, I realized about like month two of marriage that I'm taxed. The thing that can tax my patience the most in relationship is when I'm hungry. You give me an hour past lunch, an hour past dinner, and I start to struggle. And one of the main things that the Lord has done in my marriage and in my ministry, for Pete's sake, is working to just press patience into that thing. You can check with Lauren afterwards about uh, the progress report. But, but patience and the ability to just be joyful when there's a situation that I can't fix right now. Think how much this is necessary in our relationships. Our flesh is always saying, I need to have this the way I want to have it. I need to eat when I want to eat. I want to spend the church money on the things I want to spend the church money on. I want the pastor's sermon to last as long as I think it ought to last. Our flesh is always just poking up and going, I'm ready for this thing. And nobody else is. What's wrong with them? And your flesh can say, fix it. Write a letter, send an email, stomp your foot, make a scene. And the Bible says, be patient. Learn to be happy when everything isn't going your perfect, wonderful way. Be patient. Fourth thing, tolerance. Showing tolerance for one another. Or maybe your translation says bearing with one another. Let's say that we bear with one another, we tolerate one another when we endure the quirks of other people. It's not just enduring a situation. We, we bear with or we tolerate one another. So I'm not, I'm not tolerating the situation. I'm tolerating you. And I tolerate you when I bear with your quirks. It's not sin. It's not like you yell and scream at me all the time and say, I'm just going just gonna to tolerate it. You lie all the time. Well, I'm just going to bear with her on that. No, it's, it's the quirks. You say potato and I say potato. Actually, nobody says potato. You say tomato and I say tomato. Nobody says tomato either. You get the idea. I, I bear with your quirks. You say neither and I say neither. It's your way, it's not my way, but I don't have to have it my way. So I'm going to tolerate your way. And notice the other thing, showing tolerance for one another in love. <laughs> That's a sinker right there. I can't just put up with you. <sighs> I've got to bear up with you in love. I've got to learn to love your quirks. <laughs> yeah, that's what it says. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Not grudgingly, lovingly. I bear with you. Back to the car. 
One of the main ways I have had to do this with my wife, and my wife has had to do it with me, is with regard to storytelling. I tell stories to make a larger point. I don't care about details. Not one bit do I care about details. Details in a story for me are a vehicle to get to the larger point I was trying to make. This is not the way Lauren thinks about details in a story. Okay, so we get in the car after church. I'm hungry. Uh, the kids are arguing in the back about the iPad. I get in, I'm driving. Lauren gets in, she's driving beside me, and we're driving, probably speeding, on the way to get some lunch someplace. And I say, oh man, in that room there was like 23 people. And she'll say, well, actually there wasn't 23 people, there was 25 people. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I'm just trying to say that what happened. And she said, well, the problem is, is just that those, those two people that you left off, maybe they made us a meal. I don't know what they did, but you shouldn't leave those. And I was like, okay. All right, so it's 25 people. And it doesn't matter if we're having a conversation. I could be having a conversation with you. And I could be saying, you know, this funny thing happened at dinner last night. Lauren made chicken. She made, actually, it wasn't chicken. It was like steak or whatever. I'm like, okay, I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to tell this story. And here's the thing. I can and have been really frustrated with my wife because she has to get the details right. And she can, and she has, been really frustrated with me because I refuse, with reckless disregard, <laughs> to get the details correct. And so just wantonly dishing out inaccuracies. <laughs> and do you know what we need to do? We need to bear with one another. As a matter of fact, there is no law that you cannot speak hyperbolically about this, that, or the other thing, or that you have to get um, every detail right. On the other hand, there is nothing wrong at all with wanting to be accurate in the telling of the details of a story. So everybody wants good things, and what I've got to do is I've got to let it go. I, I, don't, I don't need to correct that. I can actually just love that my wife pays attention to the details that I'm ignorant of. I'm just floating through life, happy and dumb, and she's paying attention to everything. And that's a good thing. We have to do that every day. This might be the most significant area where we need to change. Because here's what we do. When we get into disagreements, we think everything is a principle. We think everything is the trinity. But most things aren't the trinity. Most things are, I wanted the carpet to be blue and you thought it ought to be red. And that's okay. You're allowed to like red carpet. I'm allowed to like blue. Most things aren't salvation by grace alone. But we make, every, we make everything rise up to that level and our relationships can't sustain it. Because we're too different for that. So we've got to bear with one another. And when you don't, you're arrogant. When you insist that somebody has to have all their quirks and all their idiosyncrasies line up exactly with you, you're wrong. And you need to tolerate one another. The Apostle Paul, in a matter of verses, is going to get into what we might say is conflict resolution. How to forgive when you've been sinned against. But he doesn't start 
with the resolution of a conflict. He starts by getting ahead of the conflict. He starts with active pursuit of unity and peace. And he says, you need to do this. But the way you'll stay ahead of a problem to begin with is when you're humble, when you're gentle, when you're patient, and when you can bear with one another. That's what you need to do. Think of these four realities as four fence rails that hem you in. And whenever you start to sling your leg over that rail of patience, you're wrong. It doesn't matter what the other person did. If you're being impatient, you're wrong. Every time you start to sling your leg over the rail of tolerance, you're wrong regardless of what the other person did. And you are the active threat at that moment to the unity of this church, of your home, and of any other relationship you're in. In fact, maybe, maybe the whole analogy of a fence rail isn't the best. Maybe think of it like a dagger. Because if the real problem is our bitter jealousy and our selfish ambition then what we have to do is die. And we need the dagger of humility stabbed into the heart of our arrogance. We need the dagger of gentleness stabbed into the heart of our harshness. The dagger of patience stabbed into the heart of, I have to have it my way. And the dagger of tolerance into, if you're not like me, you're wrong and that's bad. This means we need Jesus. We need the giver of the gift to show up and change us. We need the one who purchased the peace and who is himself the peace to produce these fruits in our life. Unity is a precious gift. Peace is a precious gift. It comes through humility. It comes through gentleness. It comes through patience. And it comes through bearing with one another. And we have to confess, if we've read Ephesians, that we know that that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the peace that he himself is. We're thankful that he purchased that for us. And Father, we ask that you would pour it out on Kenwood Baptist Church in abundant measure. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.